During my yoga teacher training, the first night we were supposed to introduce ourselves and I said, I don't really want to teach yoga. What I'm really wanting to do is learn more about the practice. And then as we went through the 10 weeks, I just kept falling more and more in love with yoga. And at the end, I'm like, I just want to share this with everybody. But then there was this gap that I started to feel like I was jumping over, even though I had group fitness experience. It's much different for me to teach a spin class than it is to choreograph and plan the sequencing and the, everything that goes into a yoga class. With yoga, there are so many more intricacies that I think you need to pay attention to. And so that's where I started to see that gap between when you come out of a training and when you really feel confident enough to teach a class with ease and grace. And that's the gap that I wanted to fill in writing the book. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. This episode is a conversation with Sherry Fisher, author of Standing Room Only, How to Be That Yoga Teacher. Sherry received her master's in transpersonal psychology from Atlantic University and her bachelor's in business from Colorado State University. An intuitive life coach and yoga teacher, she completed her 200-hour teacher training in 2010 and her 500-hour in 2021. Let's begin this final episode in the 2023 book club series with Sherry Fisher. I'd love to start with a bit about your background. Where did you grow up and when did you first start practicing yoga? I grew up in the Denver metro area and then I've lived in several different places in Colorado. Most recently, I lived in Park City, Utah. My husband took a job there and so we lived in Park City, which was a lot of fun. And then now we're living in Frisco, Colorado. We just moved here about a year ago. And it's extremely high. It's 9,100 feet elevation, which makes for long, cold winters and beautiful summers. Around the year 2000, I was working at an athletic club in Grand Junction, Colorado. I remember when yoga started to come in and the owner of the club started to teach it and was sort of just learning it herself. And I really liked it because it complemented what else I was doing because it helped with both strength and balance and flexibility. And it wasn't even until later after that, that I started to realize that yoga wasn't just a class that you took at the gym. Yoga was this entire philosophy. And so I practiced for several years and I took some foundational trainings from the Academy of Yoga, which they would do two and three day weekend workshops. And I just wanted to learn more. And then I ended up taking my yoga teacher training in 2010. There had been a new studio that opened, which was a hot power vinyasa flow. And when I found that, I really found a style of yoga that I liked because it was rigorous. It also had, we had a class called Deep Openings, which was more the yin style, the stretching. And, and so it gave me a really good balance of getting that adrenaline junkie part of me satisfied, but also then I started learning more about the entire practice and that 
asana really is just one eighth of the eight limbs of yoga. So you came from a group fitness background. What surprised you when you took teacher training? I'm curious if anything in particular stood out to you as being different from your group fitness background. When I started teaching group fitness, it was in the early 1990s, and I even took a yoga teacher certification. It was a weekend certification, and I came out of it, and I thought, I could not teach a yoga class. There is just so much more that I would need to know before I started teaching, and it was the same way. I I took a high-impact aerobic class. I took a spin class, and all of them were pretty short, two- to three-day certifications. You were just certified. And I felt like there was a gap in between what you learned in your certifications, quote unquote, and what you really needed to know to teach. And so when I took the 200 hour, I was impressed because the way mine was set up, it was over the summer and it was 10 weeks. And we would meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the evening and we'd meet and we'd practice first and then we'd take a little break and then we'd come back and do the teacher training. But What I appreciated about my 200 hour was how much more extensive it was. And it was, I think, on two different levels. One, 200 hours is a lot more than a weekend certification hours wise. But when you spread it out and you're living your life in between all of that, it it gave me time to really integrate in some of the concepts that I was learning. So I was still practicing my yoga and I, was, I could think about what did we just learn about triangle pose last week in my teacher training? And then I could try it on and experience it. And it was during this time, too, because you also learn about the yamas and the niyamas and the, all of the eight limbs. My husband started teasing me because everything that came out of my mouth had some relation to yoga. This is just like yoga. And he'd say, of course it is. It sort of became our joke. And so I think it wasn't really an immersive or an immersion training. But it was because it, it became the framework of my life. And that's the difference that I saw between taking this weekend certification where you do get a certificate, you can take it to a club and you can say, I can teach. Look, I have this piece of paper. But the 200 hour, I think, was a lot deeper. Plus, there were relationships that we built in our yoga teacher training. And I didn't get that a lot with those weekend certifications because people came from all over So then you started teaching, and this was a natural transition for you from group fitness to teaching yoga. How did that evolve? During my yoga teacher training, I went in, and the first night we were supposed to introduce ourselves, and I said, I really, I don't really want to teach yoga. What I'm really wanting to do is learn more about the practice. And then as we went through the 10 weeks, I just kept falling more and more in love with yoga. And at the end, I'm like, I just want to share this with everybody. And so I did decide to, to teach and went through and did my solo, which is the graduation requirement is, was to teach a 75-minute class. And I taught that and I absolutely just loved it. And being in the cocoon, I call it kind of a cocoon of a yoga teacher training. You have this little nest and everybody's trying and there's these students and you've got your teachers there and they're helping you through. And then I... Notice that there was a gap when you came out because they, I did pass my solo. And so they immediately said, when do you want to start teaching? And I, I still had that. I'm not sure I'm really ready. I can teach this class, this class that I just taught for you. I can teach this class. But then there was this gap that I started to feel like I was jumping over 
even though I had group fitness experience. It's much different for me to teach a spin class than it is to choreograph and plan the sequencing and the, everything that goes into a yoga class. I'm not saying that spin is easier. It's just different. And a lot of it for spin relies on the music. And if you have a good playlist and you know how to cue people, you pretty much are going to have a good class. With yoga, there are so many more intricacies that I think you need to pay attention to in within the classroom, but also even the entire practice of yoga. And so that's where I started to see that gap. And so what I did was I challenged myself and I said, I'm going to teach 10 classes as fast as I can. Anytime I was on the schedule once a week, and then anytime there was a sub request, I wanted to get 10 underneath my yoga belt as fast as I could, just to get over that hump of imposter syndrome and wondering, you know, am I really prepared for this? And that helped. That really did help. I have helped with yoga teacher trainings and I see the same thing. People come in and they say almost exactly what I said. I don't want to teach yoga. I just wanted to learn more about it. And then there's other people that say, of course I want to teach. That's why I'm here. But it was a little bit later when I started to figure out that there really is, a, there are a lot of similarities between teaching a group fitness class and a yoga class. And there is also this gap between when you come out of a training and when you really feel confident and enough to teach a class with confidence and ease and grace. And that's the gap that I wanted to fill in writing the book. So the first year I taught at the studio where I took my yoga teacher training and then the following summer. So I had been teaching for about a year. My husband got selected to go to the U.S. Army War College, and that was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And so we picked up our family and we went there for that school year. And so I registered with Yoga Alliance so that I could teach at a studio there. And also I taught at the fitness center there on the Carlisle Barracks Post. And I loved it. I loved teaching in the studio in my home studio in Grand Junction. And then when we went to Carlisle, it were it was mostly the spouses who would come. And I was teaching both spin and yoga. And so I got to do both formats of classes. But that was that year of really strong development in my teaching style. And it was a little different. I think a studio class, the people who come to a studio expect something from that's a little higher level yoga, in my opinion. When they come to this, this was actually a gymnasium and it, there was a basketball court and the yoga studio was up on the third floor, but it was open. So you could hear what was happening down on the basketball court. It was not the studio setting. And so a lot of what I had to bring in was what I call in the book, the, the character of it was contained within a gym setting, really. And But I, I had big classes, so it was for the spouses during the day and in the evenings the, the students or the soldiers could come to. I also started to teach at a local studio. And then I also was teaching, the boys were in high school, and so I was teaching the lacrosse and the football team had asked me if I would come in and help teach their athletes yoga. And so I was able to really branch out that first year and find out more about my own teaching style and my own teaching practice because I was being asked to do it in so many different places with so many different types of audiences and different needs. And so that was really a good year for me to grow as a yoga teacher. What are your classes like? What's your approach to teaching yoga? Rigorous, challenging, accessible, fun, 
when I moved to Park City, I started to teach different types of classes. So I had a rock and roll class and I would put together rock and roll playlists and it was a little bit more upbeat. I like to push students to their, their edge and teach them where that is and how they can back off. I like it to be fun. I like them to, I like to theme classes because I want them to get more than just a rigorous workout. That's part of it. But I would always come in with a quote or something I had just read or even a movie that I had just seen. And I would try to weave it through the class so that when they left, yes, they might have been exhausted physically, but they had something to take with them. And sometimes I would even print out a quote that I had because a lot of times people would say, what was that quote? And I would print it out on a piece of paper and I'd say, take this with you. And just think about it for the rest of the day or for the rest of this week. And, and what can you do with what we've done on the mat? How can you take that to where you're going next? I think our yoga mat is like a laboratory. And we can go through everything that we go through in our life on our mat. And so if I was able to help translate that to them, then they could go home and their spouse could tease them about, is everything yoga? And they could say, yes, everything is yoga because Sherry said so. <laughs> so you saw this gap between a yoga teacher training graduate and somebody who's really come into their own with their teaching. Is that who your book is geared towards? Is the person who's graduated recently but doesn't quite feel confident in their teaching yet? Yes. The way I describe it is if you were to want to make some chocolate chip cookies and you had all of these ingredients, you had butter, you had eggs, you had brown sugar, you had sugar, you had all the stuff, none of the ingredients taste like chocolate chip cookies. And it's the same when you're in a yoga teacher training. You learn the components of teaching and you even get a chance to pull them together. The, the yoga teacher trainers will say, we want you to put together a sequence that includes these three poses. And, and you do. But there's something that is between having the ingredients and between having this warm chocolate chip cookie that you're just about ready to put into your mouth. There's something else that happens in between there. And so that gap is what I'm hoping that the book helps people understand is how do you put all these ingredients together so that when you're teaching, you get to infuse your teaching style with your personality so that whatever flavor of, of cookies that you're bringing out your class gets to participate in that and enjoy that and get the most out of it. And it's not stressful to you. It's part of who you are. It's part of your yoga practice. It's part of your yoga teaching practice. And the book is based on five pillars of powerful teaching. Can we go through those pillars and can you describe each one and why you feel they're so important? Let me tell you about where the five pillars came from. When I was in Park City, I started to teach at some of the uh, rec centers and the studios about what I called the four pillars of powerful instruction. And I had pulled together the first four pillars, and that is communication, character, connection, and commitment. And so I would go in and work with their instructor teams, and we would talk about what do you think makes a great class? And no matter what format you're teaching, what makes a great class? And they would just throw up things on the board about, well, I, I think that a good playlist makes a good class. I think that a teacher who does, doesn't do body shaming makes a good class. And so we listed them all up on the boards. 
And then I would introduce the, the four pillars of powerful instruction. And I'd say, where would this one go? Where would a good playlist go under the, these four pillars? Which what you find out is a lot of them overlap, but that one necessary would be character. It sets the tone for the classes that you teach. Then when we started writing the book, each of those pillars was going to be a chapter in the book, but then it, it became even more expanded from that. And then I started to work with Gina Caputo. I introduced myself to her. She was teaching a workshop in um, Salt Lake City, Utah. And I went down and took her workshop and I told her about the book afterwards. I introduced myself and I said, I would love it if you would consider writing the foreword for the book. And she said, I will consider it, but I just have to make sure that it's within my philosophy. I said, absolutely. So I sent her the manuscripts and she read through them and she was extremely helpful for us. It was it was in line with her philosophy. But one of the things she said was, I think there's one piece that you're missing, one pillar that you may want to put in or at least look at. And it was the diversity, equity, and inclusion pillar. She said, this is really important. And it's something that I think will be missing from your book. And I will tell you honestly, in 2010, never heard the words diversity, equity, and inclusion in my yoga teacher training. It, that wasn't what we were talking about as a society, and it wasn't in our curriculum. I do believe it is now. So the fifth pillar consideration took the most research for me. And I, I co-wrote this with my sister and business partner. Her name is Lori Holden. And we, wow, we did a lot of research on that fifth pillar. And the reason was, is because we were uncovering some of our own blind spots along the way. And so that's how that fifth pillar got added in. I can go more into each of the pillars, but I think it's important to understand that I feel that these five pillars are for any group fitness instructor, any personal trainer. And really when you boil it down, it can be to anybody who teaches anything. Now our book is about teaching yoga. And so all of the examples are yoga. But I think if you were an educator, you could take the same core concepts, the same five pillars, and they would apply whether you're teaching kindergarten, whether you're teaching adult education, those five pillars are still important. So yeah, let's go into each of these pillars in more depth. The first pillar is communication. And that is how do you and your students communicate with each other? And with communication, there's at least two sides of it. There's the sender of the information and the receiver, and then there's a feedback loop in between the two. And so as a teacher, yes, I'm doing most of the talking and I'm cueing and all of that, but my students at the same time are communicating back to me with what I see, what I hear. Everything in the room is giving me information that helps feed how I'm processing what's happening in the room. And so it's from the teacher side of it, it's the words that I use. It's how I say something. Do I say it in Sanskrit? And then do I also say it in English? And so it's it's the mechanics of communication from a teaching perspective. And so in this pillar, we go into things like cueing. How do you do accurate cueing? Not too much, not too little. We call it the Goldilocks approach, just right. How much is that balance? And it, and it changes with my personality. It changes with who I'm speaking to. But then also coaching statements. What's the difference between a cueing statement and a coaching statement? Well, a cueing statement is to teach people, is to guide people into different poses, where a coaching statement to me is more about the practice. It's more about encouraging them and motivating them and challenging them. And how do you blend the two of those when you're teaching? 
And so the communication part of it also has to do with your, you know, with your sequencing and how do you pull all the things together, all the pieces together from a communication standpoint so that you and your students are working together to create this extraordinary class because you're both communicating information and receiving information and processing that information. And that's one of the the keys, I think, for any teacher is knowing your audience, knowing how to use your words. It even has to do with demonstrations because not everybody, it's not all verbal communication. It's where are you standing? What are you doing? And so we really tried to put anything in that pillar that had to do with communicating messages to and from and between the teachers and the students. I know we're skipping over one, but connection is so important for communication because in order to receive that accurate feedback, in order for that feedback loop to be engaged, your students need to trust you. They yes. need to believe that it is safe to communicate truthfully, to, to let themselves be themselves, to let their experience show instead of being performative as they're practicing. Connection is really important and it's fine to skip over them because like I said, they really overlap. We sort of tease them out and put them into these five little categories or big categories, but connection is important. And, and we started with connection with yourself. So we talk about things like understanding your intuition. How do you tap into your intuition? It's also meditation. How do you connect to yourself and that intuitive voice? And then also connecting with your students. And that, like you said, that's the basis of trust. If there isn't a feeling of connection, your students probably aren't going to trust you and you may not trust yourself in this, in being a teacher. But it's also, so connecting with your students and that's inside and outside the studio. And it even includes online, but really making the effort to have those personal connections. Now that doesn't mean you're a therapist because you're not, you're a yoga teacher. It doesn't mean that you have to, you know, take on caring for people, you know, extended periods of time. As a yoga teacher, you, you do care and you do connect and people feel that and they trust you for that. And then it's also encouraging connection between your students. So connecting two different people and saying, Joe, I'm not sure if you've met Mike. Mike is new to our town. He's new to the studio. And giving them a platform to connect with each other. Because one of the things that I think is most appealing about a yoga class is the community and the connection that you feel. And I think a lot of times people come to classes because we don't have that as much in our society and you really have to go looking for it. And I will say that our Sunday classes can be so full of people who are coming for community and they may also go to church, but there's something about a yoga community that just keeps bringing people back. And I think it's the magnet of connection. Let's circle back to character because I don't want it to get lost. Your definition of character is the tone and feel for the classes you teach. Character sets the tone and the feel for the classes that you teach. It's your personality. It's music. It's lights. It can be pulling the shades down at the end for Shavasana. It can be like the quotes that I told you that people would leave with. It's the personality that you create in the classes that you teach. And tell me more about pillar four, commitment. 
Commitment is commitment to yourself. And so that is self-care and making sure that as a yoga teacher, you're still getting your practice in. When I started teaching, when I jumped in and decided to do those 10 classes right in a row, several of those were classes that I wanted to go to. I wanted to practice. And I said, no, I'm going to teach. And because I was so excited about teaching, it was easy to give up my practice in order to do that. Teaching is its own practice, but it's not my personal yoga practice. And so making sure that you have that commitment to yourself. It's also commitment to yourself to take care of yourself as a professional yoga teacher, getting your yoga, your continuing education credits, your insurance, making sure that you keep track of all of your credits and make sure you stay current with your CPR. All of those things is commitment to yourself as a yoga teaching professional. Because if we don't teach, if we don't treat ourselves as yoga teaching professionals, nobody else will. And then it's also commitment to your students to stay certified in all of those things, to bring in continuing education, to make sure that you're updating yourself as a yoga teacher so you keep learning. Your 200 hours is a great starting platform, but keep learning because there is so much more being learned, being discovered as we go. And as yoga teachers, we need to keep learning and implementing that in the classes that we teach. So that's the commitment to your students. And then there's also commitment to your fellow teaching team. If somebody needs a sub, if I'm coming to the studio to practice and the music isn't working and the teacher is trying to facilitate the class, I stand up and I give her the signal and I'll say, let me check out the music system. Let me see if I can fix this. Or if it's really busy in the lobby saying, hey, I can check in over here and start helping. And so it's that commitment to your teaching team. We are a team. Even if we're independent contractors, we are a team. And so it's that. And it's also commitment to your studio, to the owner, you know, taking care of the laundry if it needs to be taken care of, going down if somebody, if, like in Park City, something somebody would get snowed in. And I live very close to the studio and I could be called last minute and come in and teach. And it was for the teacher, but it was also for the studio. We didn't want the students to be standing out in front of the studio with the snow coming down and nobody showing up. And so it's that. And then it's just, commitment to the community at large. Like how do you present yourself as a yoga teacher from whatever studio you are with to the community at large? And so commitment has lots of different levels, but it starts within and it radiates out. I'm really glad that you highlighted the commitment to your practice because I think that the particular audience that you are targeting is at risk of losing their practice in the quest to become a great teacher. And it's such a double-edged sword because you love yoga, you take a teacher training because you love yoga, because your practice was so meaningful to you, and then because you're committed to your students and you're committed to your community, you focus so much on teaching and on learning information that you forget to nourish yourself and you forget to nourish the relationship that you have with your own practice. And unfortunately, this actually feeds into imposter syndrome and this feeling of not being ready or good enough to teach. Because when your relationship to your own practice is really strong, then imposter syndrome is much less of a problem. Confidence is much less of a problem because you have this well 
of personal lived experience to draw from when you show up in the room. So even if the people who show up are different from what you were expecting, or all of a sudden there's a power outage or noise or whatever, you can adapt because of the consistency of your practice that you have developed over time. That's a lot of commitments, right? Commitment to yourself, your students, your fellow teachers and studio, and your community. It's easy to get burnt out and spread too thin. So the way that you have organized this, Sherry, is with this reminder that if you lose your relationship to yourself and your practice, you're not going to have the juice. You're not going to have the energy or the capacity to be committed to these other things as well. Our priorities need to be clear. When we root down, when we do our own work, that svadhyaya, that self-study, that self-inquiry, our own yoga practice, it infuses and elevates our teaching practice. So when we are rooted in and doing our own practice on and off the mat, you're right. Our confidence levels are higher. We can rely back on our yoga practice, which is pausing, taking a deep breath, being mindful, all of the things that we do on our mats, even like try something a little different from a teaching perspective. But if we have if we haven't developed our yoga practice, it's almost like when you're playing Jenga and you pull the wrong piece out and the whole tower topples over, we have to have that foundation. And that's where that name Root to Rise Yoga Teaching Method came from, was you need to do your own work and then rise up and share it with your students as a teacher. In the commitment chapter, we talked about the teacher's commitment to the studio, but we also talk about the studio's commitment to the teacher. And that is things like encouraging continuing education and helping them feel valued and appreciated. We talk a little bit about pay and Mado, I have also shared one of your links about how to price your services because I think it's so valuable, but how to, how studios also need to have commitment to their teaching team, whether they're independent contractors or whether they're employees. Right. Because it has to be reciprocal, just like the communication. You can't have a commitment going just one way. It doesn't really work. What are some strategies to foster commitment from your students to the practice? Is that something you cover at all? When I was working in Park City at the um, at one of the studios, we did 40 Days to Personal Re- Revolution, which is one of um, Baron Baptiste's books. And we there were three teachers, and we did an ongoing workshop. And we invited people to sign up and come in, and we went through all 40 days. It, we didn't meet every day, but we had a sign-up sheet. It was actually a whiteboard in the front where people could mark their workouts when they came in to actually do their practice. And then we would have, we did the fruit fast, and we did setting intentions and, and all of the different pieces. I've also seen, you know, like th- the 30 days, we're going to do a 30-day challenge where you mark it up on the board. And so I think anything like that, that it uses the strength of a community. And I think we as people also like the streaks and getting the check mark because we're Americans and we sort of have that. But I think that also can help people to, it invites people into their practice to try it out. What does it feel like if you practice every day for 30 days? What notices, what differences do you notice in yourself 
and in your practice. And then you're also building this bond with all the other people that are doing it. So I do think that there's some really good ways that you can build that commitment, encourage that commitment from your students, and then see what happens. And if you're there doing it as well, that's all the better. What I'm hearing you say is really fostering community and then bringing in some forms of gamification, which is so fun. It's such a playful way to encourage people into a commitment that's in their own best interest anyway. Whenever we've done these group things, there's a shift in the energy. People are excited to be there. They start to talk about what they're doing, how their practice is going, what are they eating, um, you know, all those things. It builds that connection as well. So it's a commitment Um, It encourages both commitment and connection between your students and between you and your students. So what about that final pillar consideration, the one that you said was most challenging for you? I love that you're admitting that. I love that you took on that challenge where you said, okay, this is not my strength yet, and I'm going to really dive into it because I believe it is important to include it in my book, and I can't include it in my book if I don't really dive into it. They say that if you want to become proficient on something, teach it. And I would also add on to that, write about it, (laughs) because it really did take a lot of research. Uh, The first part of this pillar was to give some definitions and backgrounds to some commonly used terms like privilege, prejudice, equity, equality, race, racism, all of those things, just to give a basic definition of them. Because I think As a society, we talk about them, but we wanted to be a little more clear with what we were talking about and also how that might show up in yoga studio. And then we broadened it also to put in there things like athleticism, flexibility, ableism, so that it's being being able to teach to diverse populations in compassionate and meaningful ways. And no matter how that shows up, no matter how the differences show up, because as a yoga teacher, our task is to teach one class to many people and connect with each of them in a different way. And that's a challenge. And so we, I started off in, in that pillar with definitions mostly and very short, but to help people understand how many different areas consideration can cover. And then the last part of that pillar is how do you blend all of this together? How do you blend your head and your heart together to teach in this way for the diverse students that come to the classes that you teach. If there's one takeaway from Pillar 5, it's to open up a curiosity in yoga teachers to keep asking bigger questions, to be curious, to look for your blind spots. We see the way, we see the world the way we see it because of our own experience, which is very individual. And my experience is different than yours, is different from his, is different from theirs. It's different. And if you keep that in mind as a yoga teacher and you keep asking those questions, I think it, it starts to peel itself down and you understand more about what you did never know and now you do. But you don't know everything. There's always more to seek and to learn. And it was to leave people with that, with that hunger and that thirst to know more. I love how you frame that as taking on this attitude of curiosity because When you look at these five pillars and you read the advice in this book or in any training, and then you start 
considering thinking, then you start thinking about the different ways that you might need to be considerate of others and you might need to think about your students, it can become overwhelming. It can start to feel like this is an impossible task. This is too much. And I think it's really important to pause and to recognize that nobody's doing this perfectly. So if you look outside of yourself and you look at somebody else and you're like, oh, I will never be like them. Yeah, that's true because you're not them, but they're not doing it perfectly either. And chances are that it's taken them a lot of time and practice to get to where they are. So start where you are. And if you can approach these questions with some playful curiosity, with some the sense of, hey, it's never going to be done. I'm never going to get it right. But the journey is rewarding. The journey is fun and it's bringing meaning to my life. Then I think you're on the right track. And I think with that is so much compassion for yourself because again, you've lived your life. That has been your experience. And just knowing that there's more and knowing that you you're never going to get it all right. And having that compassion to be able to say, wow, I, I wish I wouldn't have said that to you that way. And I felt like I could have done it better. And you could have, and, and maybe you do, but it's that willingness to be open. And I will say too, just for all of the pillars and the book, it's a book that we hope starts conversations. It is not the end all be all. This is the book. This is the way you teach. The collective is so much more intelligent than just one person. And so if this book opens up people's minds to having conversations, what could we uncover? What could we learn from each other? What could we discover from each other if we rely more on the collective intelligence than on any one person's intelligence? And that to me is the heart of this book is let's open the conversation Let's get it started. You don't have to agree with everything I say. It's my opinion. It's my experience. But what can we discover if we have a conversation about it and we mm -hmm. share? And speaking of the collective being more powerful than the individual, you have a co-author on this book. So I wanted to make sure that we bring her in. Did you say earlier that she's actually your sister? She is my sister, my blood sister, not my chosen sister, but yeah, she, she would be both because I absolutely adore her. Her name's Lori Holden. She's my older sister. She is not a yoga teacher, which really helped in the formatting and writing of this book because I came with the teaching background. She came from what she calls a connoisseur yoga student. And so she has been to multiple types of classes, styles of classes, teachers and all of that. And so what we found is it really gave it a well-rounded approach to the Root to Rise yoga teaching method because it had all of that in there and all of that included. She's also an excellent writer. She has a couple of books of her own on open adoption. That's her specialty, but she did a lot of editing and just, it was, it was a collective experience that we went through and I wouldn't have had it any other way. I think too, from a yoga teacher's perspective, it's almost like the students were there within the words of the book, helping them to understand from a student's perspective why some of these concepts were so important. And that's how Lori infused her experience and her wisdom into the book is because she saw the other side of it. 
I'm a student also, but once you're a teacher, it's hard to go back to not seeing it through the teaching lens. And Lori didn't have that barrier. She only saw it from a student's perspective. And it, I will tell you, it enriched the book. Her perspective is really important. I love that. If listeners want to get their own copy of the book and want to find out more about the work that you do, where should they go? Our website is root2riseyogis.com, and that's root2riseyogis.com. If you want the book, it's called Standing Room Only, How to Be That Yoga Teacher, and it's available on Amazon. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, and it's Root to Rise Yogis. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sherry, for sharing your method and the thoughtfulness behind the method and the thoughtfulness behind the book. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for inviting me to come on and talk about the book. The book, it was a labor of love and the emphasis is on love. It's out there. We birthed it into the world and we're ready for everybody to pick it up and hopefully help as many yoga teachers as possible so that they can bridge that gap and get to that place of confidence, ease, and grace in their teaching. And congratulations, because I know it is a huge, huge project to write a book and put it out into the world. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you.